Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscriptstudy biblicalworld. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. I'm Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. We've got a very special episode for you today with Dr. K. Lawson Younger. Chris and Mark are going to be talking with him about the Arameans and the Assyrians and their significance for understanding the Old Testament. So we hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. Welcome into On Script, the biblical world. I am one of your co-hosts, Mark Jansen. Joining me, as he has several times, is my good friend, Chris McKinney. Chris, how are you? Mark, great to, great to be back. It's been a while. You've gone to Egypt and done all kinds of things. We roomed together at a, at a big conference. That's the last time we saw each other, but it's been a while since we've done podcasts. I'm excited to, uh, to learn uh, from our guest today, who you should introduce. Yeah, so we are privileged to be joined today by a former professor of mine, Dr. Lawson Younger, who is the professor of Old Testament Semitic Languages and Ancient Near East History. That's a lot of specializations there at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where I did my master's. So I think I had you for three or four classes total, and it is a great privilege to have you. Thank you so much for joining us, Lawson. How are you? Uh, thank you very much, Mark. And yes, it's uh, great to be with you. I'm doing fine. Thank you. So Lawson, your, uh, your background, I think, would be interesting to our listeners. I don't know that we've had a whole lot of Assyriologists on here. So can you tell us a little bit about your academic training, how you became interested in studying Assyriology, and then uh, as well as the Aramean, since that's been your recent work? Yeah. Well, um, when I was in seminary, I uh, in graduate school, I took a number of um, ancient Eastern languages and literatures, uh, as well as, of course, um, biblical studies courses. And um, and I just fell in love with uh, the ancient Eastern world uh, in general. And um, the Akkadian language I found to be uh, just really, really intriguing and interesting. Uh, cuneiform script. Uh, different dialects and um, and just uh, really very intriguing and interesting. So uh, that's that's kind of how I move that that direction. Um, in terms of uh, Arameans, um, that really developed over time uh, as I continued to work on particularly neo-Assyrian inscriptions, where you have all kinds of contact between the Assyrians and different Aramean polities. That began to generate my interest. Um, old Aramaic inscriptions, working with those, uh, of course, uh, was another uh, angle to it. Various uh, texts of the Hebrew Bible, the Arameans are everywhere uh, throughout uh, the the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. So, so you encounter them in that fashion, and then. I slowly but surely became more and more interested in the archaeology of Syria. I think part of this was due to the fact that uh, after the Gulf Wars, a lot of archaeology moved from uh, Iraq to Syria. And so a lot of activity was being done and exciting new things, etc. Unfortunately, the Civil War has uh, completely uh, interrupted all of that. 
But nonetheless, uh, those factors all kind of came together. And one of my other uh, interests is hieroglyphic Luvian. And so uh, North Syria is where most of those inscriptions, or a very large number of them, are encountered. And that whole discipline has kind of exploded in number of inscriptions over the last few decades. And so, so there's always something new and interesting. Uh, to keep me entertained. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's yeah. that's fascinating. Uh, I think one of the one of the things that I hadn't really realized before until you just said it is how often our area of interest is is kind of determined by what's happening in the world of of archaeology, and that in itself is determined so much by the modern politics. And so it's really interesting that. You know, as as we think back about the last two hundred years or so of, of of research, how it starts in Mesopotamia, but now that's completely inaccessible. Goes to Syria, then that becomes inaccessible, and now uh, there's just a, a kind of a few places that you could actually excavate. And so, um, it makes that's a that's just an interesting way for our you know, and our listeners. Um, so many people say, well, why don't you go excavate this place and that place? First of all, it's hard to excavate. Second, it might be completely closed to uh, to exploration. And I, I have kind of like a follow-up question here. Has there ever been any, any hairy situation you've been in, uh, in, in, because of those modern political situations? Um, in, I mean, like not necessarily dangerous, but you're like, I'm not sure I'm going to go to, uh, to this, to this location because things might be a little. I suppose, I mean, when I was a, a fellow at the Hebrew university, uh, when, when I uh, landed to find an apartment for uh, my wife and my newborn son to join us, the first Lebanon war was taking place. So, uh, so yeah, I suppose you can say uh, I have stupidly stepped into uh, situations. I once went to a train station in Aswan by myself and suddenly found myself surrounded by young men. That was, again, a uh, who wanted to know what my thoughts were about uh, Anwar Sadat. Uh, fortunately, I could say I didn't know the man <laughs> uh, because they were uh, anti-Sadat and made it very, very clear. So anyway, uh, yeah, I found myself, uh, usually because of my own uh, lack of thinking, <laughs> uh, in situations. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so interesting. I mean, I'm a huge fan of context of scripture and I'm, I'm very much um, uh, indebted to all your great scholarship that you've done. And, and so many of us, I didn't go to, to, to Ted's, I went and studied in Israel, but so many of us have benefited greatly from your work. Um, and just maybe I'll say uh, a couple definitions here about uh, Neo-Assyrian period of what we're talking about for our audience. Neo-Assyrian period essentially refers to the first half of the uh, first millennium BC, up until the destruction of uh, of Nineveh towards the end of the seventh century, and there's just a whole host of inscriptions that relate to this that were found in places like Nineveh and Kala and other places that are today located in Iraq, and that's what um, uh, Lawson was, uh, Dr. Younger was, was was talking about, and the Arameans were part of that whole whole world. And so my my follow up question is, um, as as we're thinking about things like context of scripture, and you've been an editor now on, on four volumes, uh, everyone should go get them, in my opinion, get them on accordance 
uh, which has all the search capabilities function. You just came out with volume four. I've been waiting for it, uh, which is it's just a great, a great thing. And so you're, you're one of these uh, of a number of scholars associated with the contextual approach. Uh, can you define that for our audience and explain why it's so helpful for understanding the Bible? Yeah, I um, would just quickly say that William Hallow is the one who coined contextual approach. He was a professor of Assyriology at Yale. He was one of my mentors and, and one, one of the individuals that, of course, uh, has been very influential in uh, thinking about these things. Basically, um, what just a background, and then I'll get into the, the guts of what your question is. Ever since the discovery and decipherment of cuneiform inscriptions and Egyptian hieroglyphics, etc., there have been texts discovered that seem to have some kind of connection, in some cases directly with the Bible. And so um, the comparative method, if you want to call it that, has been practiced by scholars since the early days of these discoveries. And basically it was, hey, look, I found a text uh, that has a similar account to the flood story of Genesis. Uh, Cool. Uh, Look at the comparison. And then people would draw a conclusion, sometimes very conjectural conclusions, as the result of, of a just raw comparison. And so uh, Hallow developed what he called the contextual method, which is a method by which really you are looking for a balanced approach of comparison and contrast. So Hallow insisted that you cannot simply compare or you cannot simply contrast. If there are similarities, if there are differences, fine, but you must slow down the process and analyze uh, more closely. And that's really uh, basically what the, the, the um, method is. It's, it's, it's a process of analysis that just does a better job of attempting to look at both where you have similarities and contrast. Now, it has been developed more, and I've emphasized in particular the need for propinquity uh, as a criterion uh, in the process. That is, how near are these texts um, to the biblical text in chronology, in language, uh, in culture, in proximity of geography? And this really becomes a comparative or a a contextual method that is useful not just for text, but for archaeological and anthropological uh, analysis. It basically just says, slow down, be cautious, don't uh, make rash conclusions about borrowing or influence or this thing or that thing until you have done a more thorough analysis uh, of the material. And that's, that's what the contextual method really is going for. It's trying to balance ultimately between what has been called parallelmania on the one extreme and parallelophobia on the other extreme. And one still encounters both of those um, in our discipline. And unfortunately, uh, there are a lot of people who don't think about really uh, method. They just simply uh, say, oh, here's something that is similar or dissimilar to the Bible, and they just run with it 
without uh, taking the time to to analyze it. And this can also carry over into situations that are not just uh, tied to the Bible. It can be where people are comparing and contrasting other cultures within the ancient Near East. And there's just a need to slow down that process, think more thoroughly about what are the similarities, what are the differences, weigh those, and make a more cautious assessment. I, uh, I remember from class learning those three terms, parallelomania, parallelophobia. Thankfully, those first and then propinquity. But the other thing that makes me think of with, with this issue of borrowing or influence is how do we go about really demonstrating that that we have clear borrowing? Like, do we need stages of transmission? Or right? how do we go from the Babylonian Enuma Elish to the creation account in Genesis how do we, you know, what, what kind of transmission process happens there? Yeah, and, and that's that's part of uh, slowing down the process because what you really want to start doing is asking questions. Well, how would Israelites uh, know about Enuma Elish? They very well, I think, might know about it, but one has to um, uh, think about uh, the transmission of texts, the uh, the the use of traditions, and I think in mo- many 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 cases we really need to just avoid using the word borrow, because I think um, in most instances one can demonstrate that uh, some of this is part of just a cultural milieu, a broader cultural milieu, and so uh, the tendency to to see these things as Borrowed. It also, I think, comes down to sometimes people have looked at the Levant more as the backwater. In other words, Egypt and Mesopotamia are the two great big civilizations, and everything in between, you know, are primitives and uh, tribal nomads running around, not you know, being able to figure out anything. And the 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 truth of the matter is, it's much, much more complex. And the more uh, we see uh, coming out of Syria, North Syria in particular, the more we're learning that there are a lot of things that didn't originate in Mesopotamia. They actually originated in northern uh, northern Levant and then came into Mesopotamia. So this is, I think, um, something, it's, it's always a much more complex process. And sometimes we we explain things before we have all the data. Yeah, and I think sometimes we forget or we maybe lose sight of the fact that so much data early on in the field's history was coming out of Babylon, modern Iraq, and out of Egypt, and that just influenced the idea of this backwater. And now that we're, you know, 200 years later, of course, we can still get data there, especially from Egypt. Politically, it's, you know, open, but we also are seeing that the the picture is much more complex of a like-minded people, even with different civilizations, of course, but a certain, like you said, cultural milieu. And I think even the history of the field has biased us if we're not careful. Yeah, if I if I can jump in here, um, I just say a, a couple things that I, I find um, to be really really interesting, just related to this point of of borrowing and influence and everything. I, everything you, I, I would just echo and just to put out an example. You mentioned the the flood the flood story. Um, it, we were we were reading recently, and we. Uh, I was reading the, the the Greek classical Deucalion story, and it's it's interesting that how did 
<laughs> how do you get between all these stories that have really similar things? And some things are really similar between Mesopotamia and the Bible, but sometimes things are more similar between the Bible and the Greek myth. And some are more similar between the Greek. And it, it, it's exactly what you're pointing is there's not a, it's not a train cars, you know, that they're just passing. It's, it's this shared reality. And, and I think that that overall context that you point to is, is so helpful. And I would just uh, um, add, I mean, what I've loved about um, not just reading so much of like context of scripture, but also as you've um, like at ASOR and these different con- conferences, I remember a couple of years ago, you gave a presentation on um, the so-called kingdom of Palestine or Palestine in, in the North. And, and it, it has a lot of smoke uh, you might say, and there's been all this discussion about it, but you you had a, 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 so many good pushbacks against that um, because of the linguistic issues, and and so what I what I'm commending you here is is on that you can, and there seems to be many connections you can make, um, but the but you want to people either want to dismiss them entirely or they want to make the connections the main thing, whereas the really the only thing that you can control is the method. And, and and I think that's such a, a crucial part of of what you guys have have done and, and characterizes so much of your research. Well, there's one more thing, I think, too, and that's the Bible uh, creates a situation within scholarship where you have over the centuries uh, scholars who want to prove the Bible and scholars who want to disprove the Bible. And so both are agenda driven. And agenda-driven kinds of research are not going to ultimately yield the best results. They simply are looking for what they are going to find, and they find what they're looking for. And gee, surprise. And so um, it's crucial that scholars go where the data actually takes you. And this means you have to take uh, a step back and make sure that your presuppositions are not dominating in any way your your approach to the to the material and looking for the best ways of explaining the the phenomena that you are encountering yeah and i i would just i, I would just add to this and and get your comments on this is i think a lot of times people will will focus uh, on the bible and biblical studies obviously is a legitimate field and it has to have this contextual approach but there's a reality that you can study Ugarit without the Bible. You can study Ebla without the Bible. You can study Assyria. And, and it's just a, actually Assyria might be the focus and the Bible just touches on what you, and that's perfectly legitimate. And actually, in many ways, that's the way people are approaching it. And what, what I've seen, um, again, in this, in the context of scripture is we're pulling in from these areas, but, but you're, you're understanding those fields and, and what their goals are and how the Bible touches on them. It's not where the Bible has to be the center to all ancient Near Eastern study. And, and I think that you've made those comments before, and, and I think that that resonates very powerfully. So that was sort of the uh, satellite view, right, as we look at the, the big picture methodology. Let's go a little more uh, microscopic and talk about uh, the Arameans and the Assyrians to some extent and the role, you know, the important things maybe I should say that our audience needs to know about them. Certainly people will be familiar with Assyria from the destruction of Samaria. But how does your, your knowledge of those two peoples uh, help you understand scripture better and, and the history of the region better? Well, I mean, first of all, um, both of those peoples have uh, long histories. 
And um, and those histories are firstly interesting in themselves. I mean, in other words, uh, there there's a lot to be um, enjoyed in learning about each of these uh, on their own. But there are uh, lots of places, as I said, throughout uh, the biblical text, particularly during the divided monarchy, where there are many, many intersections of contact and events. Assyrian kings are mentioned in the Bible by name. Assyrian uh, inscriptions mention Israelite and Judahite kings by name. Uh, there, there are other ki- kinds of uh, interactions. We know from economic texts, for instance, of Israelites in Assyria prior to um, Assyrian exploitation of the north. So, I mean, I, I think um, there, there are just many, many uh, things, and this is taking place over a long period of time. When you consider the fact that uh, a very large number of the prophets of the Hebrew Bible do their thing, <laughs> at least in a traditional chronology, during the divided monarchy, then bingo, you now have other large swaths of uh, biblical text in which these entities have have lots of uh, interaction and contact. So the importance, I think, is is evident just from the amount of uh, times that one encounters uh, in these texts, uh, these different people groups. Yeah, I mean, I've even heard it said that something like Sennacherib's invasion of Judah in 701 BC is is maybe even the most attested event in the whole Bible, or at least yeah, one of them. Yeah, that's something I have said many many times, It's uh, and written, actually, mm-hmm. that uh, it is the most well-attested event in all of the Bible when you consider the number of chapters, the number of allusions, the theological results with the rise of Zion theology, uh, all kinds of things that are uh, the, result of, the result of that. And because it was an event that can be seen in the archaeological record, can be seen in other writings. In other words, we have Egyptian material that uh, relates to it. All of these things make it uh, an incredible event of importance. And so, yeah, it's um, and it, I, it is that way. I would just add to that, uh, based upon some episodes that we've done in the past, uh, we did a, a couple of Christmas episodes, and one of the things we're pointing out was what does Sennacherib, Sargon, and Tiglath-Pileser III have to do with Christmas? And the answer is quite a lot, uh, because so much of what you read in the Gospels comes from Isaiah, comes from these, uh, even the stuff in Jeremiah is related to things that have happened because of the Assyrians. And so it's not just that you, as you point out, the impact from the contemporary Old Testament but the ripple effect that it has uh, to where Isaiah becomes one of the most well-known and, and used books in the Second Temple period. It's among the top three most quoted in the New Testament. So it's, a, it's of huge importance to understand its, its cultural background. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. And even that, that event with Sennacherib has all the collaborative evidence, or potentially, like with Lachish excavations, Sennacherib's reliefs, Siloam Tunnel inscription. So it's a rich interaction. Oh, it's very rich indeed. And and so it, it is not only rich, but it also is extremely challenging because of all that data 
because you must uh, evaluate it and then you must synthesize it. You must bring it together. And how are you going to weigh that the various different types of evidence? And this, of course, uh, gets to uh, all, all kinds of issues of historical methodology. Yeah. So among those things, I mean, I, we know you've written uh, not only in context of scripture, but a few years ago, you, you published a history of the Arameans. And you're also working on a new book, I think, uh, on the Aramean religion. Um, so if we, if we shift a bit from the Assyrians to the Arameans, maybe you could also tell us um, how like what, what's our main information? Like how do, what, what's our main data coming from from the Arameans and how their society, if you just give us kind of a bird's eye view of when the Arameans come on the scene, uh, and then what uh, we can really know about them and when they, when they kind of depart from the scene and what's their legacy uh, in the Bible and, and in the larger ancient Near East. Okay, I'll try to do that without uh, giving task. you uh, 800 pages of answer. <laughs> um, yeah, I think um, the the first thing I would uh, just quickly say is the Arameans are not like the Assyrians in that there's never a single Aramean empire with a single king with a more or less continuous history. These are all different small polities uh, tribal entities. Uh, all of them are tribal entities. In fact, one of the important things to glean out of a study of the Arameans is their tribal structures, how those work, uh, the varying degrees of mobility and pastoralist tendencies, etc., that you encounter within all of these different tribal entities. The Arameans also um, are mobile in the sense that they really do become the ubiquitous people of the ancient Near East. Uh, they really are everywhere by the time uh, their polities disappear. And uh, what I attempted to do in my book is give as best overview of what we know about how they came into existence, which is really shrouded still in a lot of mystery because we're, re we're reliant on text in this instance. Archaeology really can, can give us models, or anthropology can give us the models, and archaeologists can, can try and uh, reconstruct to a certain extent. But texts uh, give us uh, some basic information about who are the tribes and where they are and, what, and, and then where they're encountered elsewhere. So the Arameans... Uh, play uh, varying roles uh, depending on the different polities, but all of them play a very important role because they spread the Aramean language, and the Aramaic language then becomes the lingua franca of the ancient Near East. And as a very famous Assyriologist years ago at the University of Chicago, Leo Oppenheim, uh, remarked, uh, not only did he call them the ubiquitous people of the ancient Greece, he also suggested that they were the conduit for the uh, movement of knowledge uh, throughout uh, the ancient Near East. And I think that there is a really good argument to be made for that, that through their presence everywhere, their language, knowledge moved. And uh, we see this, I think, when you, when you look uh, closely at all kinds of, of uh, 
types of, of information and data. Um, in terms of the, the Bible, uh, certainly there are the nearer Aramaic kingdoms, Aramean kingdoms like Damascus, that play just extremely vital roles in the history of the Northern Kingdom. But other small ones like Gesher, uh, Ma'aka, also are there, Beit Rehov. Uh, so all of these would be of interest for varying different reasons as one studies uh, certain Old Testament text. And nowadays, Hazael, the king of Damascus, has, uh, within certain archaeological circles, become kind of the focus to where almost everything in the Hebrew Bible is now getting uh, focused on Hazael. I mean, uh, his period is where everything gets uh, crammed in. And uh, if it's not him, then it's Jeroboam, the second of the northern kingdom. And so everything is basically getting crammed into that kind of thing. Aaron Bayer and I talked about the possibility of writing an article debunking all of this um, tendency to just telescope everything into the reins of these two individuals. Uh, but perhaps I'm getting off off track uh, when I'm on. In other words, I'm not on script. Yeah, you're, you're, you're right <laughs> I on see what script. You did there. You're, you're right on script. And uh, in fact, if you do write that article, you and Aaron should definitely come on and tell us why, you know, in, in an audio version, because I think you're absolutely right. Um, it seems like they're just magnets. You know, Jeroboam II, who has like two verses in the entire Bible, becomes David and Solomon put together. And uh, and then Hazael is, yeah, he's, you know, I mean, he's, he's an important guy. Uh, yeah, but yeah, absolutely. it's... Yeah, I, I think I think those are some some excellent certainly, points. Certainly more important than uh, a lot of monarchs. I mean, he actually is deified after death, and even in New Testament times in Damascus, uh, they are still venerating uh, Hazael as a deity. So, really, uh, I, did, yeah, I didn't know right. that. What? Where? Where, yeah, did, so where they're does? Not, the... um, uh, they're not many people who get that kind of. Uh, <laughs> you know, elevation. Uh, so Hazel was certainly uh, quite a guy, uh, apparently, to the to the uh, people of Damascus. Where, where, uh, that's um, a teaser for the, uh, the Aramean religion book. That's yeah, right. there you go. So what where, where are those sources for Aramean religion that you're, you're pointing to there? Like, how, how, where yeah, does that come from? Uh, well, it's, uh, you, can, uh, you can see it in my book on the history of the Arameans. <laughs> Uh, the end of the chapter on Aram Damascus <laughs> uh, mentions the sources. <laughs> Very nice. Well, we'll, we'll uh, check it out. We'll check yeah, it out. They're, they're, they're Greek sources, uh, but uh, there you go. <laughs> of course, you have other you know, famous Aramean text being, I think one probably more of our audience might be familiar with being the Tel Dan inscription. Right. So, uh, which, which most uh, of us uh, believe is, in fact, an inscription of Hazael. I think there's very little reason to uh, see it otherwise unless you completely reconstruct the fragments of the stela, which I think is not really possible. But I won't I won't go down that road. Yeah, I guess just real quick to clarify for people who aren't aware, that is a fairly famous text amongst us ancient historians because it apparently has the phrase House of David in it written by an enemy of uh, Israel and Judah. 
and we can kind of leave it at that. Uh, so I have one more sort of serious question, and then we have a series of sort of fun ones for you. Uh, back to the first thing I read by you, uh, which was either this book or the judge's commentary, but your dissertation was on conquest accounts and the book of Joshua. Can you kind of walk us through what those accounts were and sort of what that means for interpreting Joshua and maybe what we get wrong? Yeah, well, I um, what I attempted to do, this was my dissertation written at the end of the late Bronze Age. And <laughs> uh, when I was still in school, <laughs> but, uh, but in, all, in all seriousness, uh, I was uh, trying to look at uh, how ancient Near Eastern peoples wrote their war accounts. And I call them conquest accounts because what most of these accounts are, they are about uh, defeating enemies and taking over territory, etc. So, so in a sense, they really are conquest accounts. And so it made some sense to see what kinds of techniques that were being utilized and then what kind of things could be gleaned out of that uh, for the interpretation of Joshua. I think um, without uh, going into too much uh, detail, the most obvious thing that really comes out of a study of this sort is the incredible uh, commonality of usage of hyperbole within ancient accounts, uh, war accounts, you know, where you get overstatement after overstatement, and this becomes uh, really very much part and parcel. Hyperbole is a figure of speech that's used. Uh, it's an emotional figure, and it's also pers- uh, per persuasive figure. It's used very often to persuade to a particular point of view. That's why you hear it so often in political speeches, <laughs> because it's an overstatement to try and get you on their side. And so when you look at these accounts, you suddenly realize that this is this is extremely common. And so when the Bible uh, declares that Joshua conquered all the land, one campaign, it's it's wise to understand that this is part and parcel of um, the use of hyperbole in such accounts. Yeah, and things like putting all the inhabitants to the sword and things like that. And almost anywhere where you're finding all yeah. <laughs> uh, is a place where you're getting overstatement. And the reason that we can see that is because uh, these same places have to be conquered again or uh, defeated again or something. And we see this, for instance, I mean, Sennacherib is one person I did uh, point out uh, where he is campaigning in uh, the east of Assyria and he's conquering uh, some of these towns, and and then uh, a year later he's conquering them all again. But he just had killed them all uh, the year before, <laughs> uh, and so uh, wait a minute, something's happening here. If he killed them all, and how come there's still some around? The cockroaches uh, are back. <laughs> yeah. So it just shows that just a, a very close reading, uh, just a, a cautious reading. I think this is what it really comes down to is just reading it carefully shows you that hyperbole is a common feature of ancient uh, conquest accounts, and you certainly see it, I think, in the Bible as well. And so that's just one one example. But there are other things about the transmission code, uh, the way in which 
ancient Eastern peoples wrote their their account that I also tried to pick up on and ex- use to explain. Uh, but that, I mean, there's commonality in ideology. There's uh, other things that are going on. And I think uh, Joshua is exhibiting an imperialistic ideology similar to the imperialistic ideology that we encounter in uh, royal accounts, uh, whether they be in Assyria, Hatti, or uh, that's the Hittites, or Egypt. And, um, and that in itself, I think, is saying something perhaps even theological, uh, if you take it uh, within a framework of a theot- uh, theocratic uh, king uh, understanding. So anyway, those are, those are just some thoughts there. I, I just have a, a, a re- related question to this. I, I've, I've read in the past, some people have pointed to a, a connection between the epic of, uh, of Kirta or Keret, I know it's different names, and, and the book of Joshua. For those of you who don't know, the epic of Kirta is about this guy named Kirta who doesn't have any sons. He needs to go find a wife. Uh, and so he's advised by the gods to, to go and uh, attack this city. There's no perfect wife there, and she'll give him sons. Um, but it, but some people have have said that it has a lot of similarities to what you read about the the opening chapters of Joshua, especially associated with Jericho. Would you put that in, uh, or or is it kind of a separate uh, kind of comparison, or do you not see anything at all? Well, when I uh, no, I think there would be some some uh, grounds for uh, looking at it comparatively. But I also think uh, what's important in uh, our discussion and comparison and contextual method is to pay attention to genre and try and compare uh, like genres where we have like genres. So, um, so in my uh, ancient conquest accounts, I did not uh, consider Kirta because I felt that there were things about it that didn't quite match uh, in the same way that we have with other uh, royal inscriptions from the from the ancient ancient Near East. So, but that doesn't you know that doesn't mean it isn't a legitimate comparison. Again, you would want to look at comparisons and contrast. How is Kirta different uh, than the Joshua account? And that's something that uh, needed to be done. And I tried to do when I did uh, the ancient conquest account. I was only simplifying in terms of giving one illustration of hyperbole, uh, but there are many, many other things and ways in which Joshua is very different uh, than the royal inscriptions. Yeah, I think that's I think it's a great point, and you're showing again, demonstrating through this example uh, the different ways you can handle uh, the evidence through the contextual approach, whether it's contrast or comparison, and that leads me to uh, this question. We 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 kind of hinted around it, but. Uh, as someone who's not only um, a scholar and written so much and, 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 and constantly involved in these discussions, you're also a, a teacher and you also know um, how modern, to some extent, how you know the, the feel and the pulse of, of modern seminaries. And um, both Mark and I know as people who have come up more in the Iron Age than the Bronze Age uh, uh, in terms of our PhDs and, and so on, the bent of American seminaries to not include contextual studies to focus on systematic theology and, and these other things. Um, what would you say, what, what pride of place or, or how would you put the contextual approach among the tools and the disciplines that seminary students should, should 
um, should have and and what what, semin- what how should seminaries come about this differently that this can be part of the discussion maybe you get your insights on that yeah well I mean my own feeling is that the best way to frame this is really to talk in terms of culture the minute that we say that the Hebrew Bible was written in Hebrew in Aramaic we have immediately said it's in a different culture. And when we really look at it more closely, we see that it is multiple cultural cultures because the culture of the time period of, let's say, the United Monarchy, if one holds to the United Monarchy, which I do, then uh, that's going to have a, a different look than what you see in the divided monarchy. And uh, so there, there really are uh, multiple cultures within the Old Testament, but at the same time, there's a koine of culture. And that koine of culture needs to be entered into and understood. And it's the same thing with the New Testament. The minute that you say it's written in Greek, koine Greek, you have just said it's written in a particular time period, in a different culture, and this demands comparison and contrast. This demands uh, tools for analysis that allow uh, people to read the Bible with better methodology. As much as I appreciate systematic theology and church history, et cetera, et cetera, and, and, uh, and I do, the biblical text is the authority, at least as uh, evangelical kinds of seminaries look at these things, and therefore it needs to play a vital role in the building of one's theology. Too many systematic theologies are just proof-texting kinds of enterprises, and when you really look at uh, those texts carefully, they may not say what they're saying, or they may say something radically problematic. I wouldn't want to base any of my theology of God on the speeches of Bildad uh, in the book of Judges. Uh, since at the end of the book, God says he's wrong uh, consider, you know, uh, in the way that he's argued about him. So it would make sense to me that uh, those passages in Job are probably not the best verses to appeal to. And this is, again, just reading the text carefully. And so, um, so methodology-wise, I think uh, there's a very great role for the contextual method uh, within seminary training. I, I would completely concur, and I can speak for Mark because uh, I know he concurs also. <laughs> I, uh, we 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 like to do a lightning round on 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 script, um, and so these are not let's say the most academic kinds of questions because we want our audience to uh, to to. To know you, to know you a bit. So the, I'll start with the with with a really hard one: coffee or tea? Which which is oh, your coffee? Uh, co- yeah, just you know, uh, tea is great uh, in the summer with ice. It has its role, but coffee's a it daily. Has its right? role. <laughs> but even then, coffee in the morning, absolutely, absolutely. All right, so you know, you know, a couple languages that like five other people know. Besides that, what do you like to do uh, for a hobby? So outside of those ancient inscriptions, give us a hobby. Uh, Well, my wife and my family are game people. We love games, board games, anything from really challenging uh, games like chess to um, 
to just mindless card games. We we just love to do that. And um and everyone in our family, uh so we just have a great time playing playing games. So so that that would be one of one of my hobbies is is uh my wife and I play a, a game almost every evening after dinner. Okay, just for the fun. Just for fun. My seven year old got the board game Sorry for Christmas. And we've played it, I don't know how many times. It's been a month, right? I have yet to beat her. She has yeah, beat me I'm sorry. every single time. And she's not a gracious winner yet. So, <laughs> okay. But this is how you learn. So, yeah, I, I think true. our children learned well about uh, winning and losing, uh, at least through the board games. So, anyway. Yeah, very good. Chris, you got one more, I think, on the lightning round. <laughs> Last lightning round. And this is kind of a hybrid. So, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's it's academic, but 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 uh, also uh, light. What is your favorite ancient Near Eastern inscription, and why? And I know that word "favorite" is always overused, but you, I bet you have a favorite. My favorite is the one I'm working on at the moment. <laughs> good answer. Good answer. So it changes how often then? Right at this very second, I'm working with uh, a pseudo inscription. So it's not a real inscription, but uh, but it's um, a magical text and uh so it and actually it's it's an amulet that has three uh pseudo inscriptions on it so it's uh quite intriguing and interesting so that's um that i would say is my favorite or you can you can see on my uh facebook page <laughs> uh my background usually shows a particular inscription that i like that I have actually been able to take a photo of. <laughs> and so I use my own photo to, to highlight that. I think Kulamua is up there at the moment. Uh, so a Phoenician inscription for those that don't know. Right. Well, we, we really enjoyed having you on and we'd love for you to come back. And if you want to talk about your new book when it's published and anytime, I, I just, again, thank you so much for your work and all the stuff you've done. And um, just thanks, thanks for coming on to the to the podcast. I'm sure our listeners will really enjoy hearing about your your research, and especially as you've emphasized the methodology. Mark, you got any final words? Nope. Just uh, thanks again for joining us. It was always a pleasure to have you in class and catch up in conferences. And we will definitely have to do this again, like Chris said, maybe when the the new book is out and catch up again. Well, hope to have a draft by the end of this calendar year is the goal. Great. And we'll see. I mean, I may, I may not succeed, but that's the, that's the, that's the goal. That's the goal. (laughs) We understand that all too well. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, definitely. I get that one. (laughs) All right. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And, and for our listeners, uh, this has been on script biblical world podcast. Uh, Tune in again next time. You've been listening to on scripts, biblical world podcast. If you enjoy the show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study donate. Until next time, keep digging.